how do you uh, measure how do you measure glory? I think if you, you think about some common metrics or some common ways that you would think about how does how does one receive glory or how does one how does uh, I think maybe we might talk about it in terms today like popularity, but really we're talking about how does how does somebody receive credit, how does somebody receive glory, how does somebody receive fame? How do you, how do you measure that? Uh, it's kind of an intangible thing, but maybe a couple of ways that we would do it in our society is uh, you think about like a team, the glory of winning a championship. How, how, do you, how, do you, how do they get more glory? How do they get more fame? How do they get more notoriety? Well, they, they defeat all their opponents, and the better their opponents are, when they win in the end, the greater their glory. So if a team goes undefeated or they beat somebody that, that the other, other people thought was unbeatable, then they, they are thought of as having this great glory or this great fame or this great notoriety. Other ways we do it is we're talking about, uh, we're talking about fans. Who has the most fans or who has the most followers on Twitter or who sells the most books or, or sells the most albums or the most tickets the more, the more fans that a person has, the more, the more followers, the more people who are buying their merchandise, the more, that's how we measure notoriety, that's how we measure fame, that's how we measure glory. And, and if, you can get, if you can get people to buy from all, all kinds of different uh, diverse backgrounds, if you can get old people and young people and people from different languages, and, and, and it's, not only if you, it's not only if you sell a bunch of albums in the United States, but if you're big in Japan, you're big in Europe, you're big all over the world, that's, how you, that's more glory, that's more fame, that's more notoriety, that's more popularity. What I hope you'll see today is that is the fame of Jesus Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ has defeated the greatest opponents. Jesus Christ has won the most followers from the most diverse group of people all over the world. That's how God brings glory to his son. And I want you to see that more and more, even from 2 Samuel 4. 2 Samuel 4. They will be in 2 Samuel, starting in 2 Samuel 4. And this is where David's kingdom is established. And it is his kingdom, first of all, established against all contenders. All contenders. 2 Samuel 4. This is what it says. 2 Samuel 4, read the whole chapter. It says, when Ishbosheth. Saul's son heard that Abner had died at Hebron. His courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Baanah, and the name of the other, Rechab, sons of Rimen, a son of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also is counted a part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimen, the Berothite, Rechab, and Baana set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana 
his brother escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay in his bed, in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord, the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Baanah, his brother, the sons of Remen, the Berothite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when the wicked men, uh, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. So uh, to kind of catch you up in the story, Saul, the, the king, the first king of Israel, uh, whom God had rejected for his disobedience, had died. Uh, but one of his sons, Ishbosheth, had, had sort of risen up as, as the, the next king. Uh, but he wasn't really the one leading the rebellion. Really, the rebellion was led by Abner, who was one of Saul's commanders. And so he had set, uh, he had set, he had set, um, he had set Ishbosheth up as his kind of the puppet king uh, in, in his place. He was going to kind of rule through Ishbosheth. Well, Ishbosheth hears that Abner, who died in chapter 3, is dead. And so Ishbosheth is really afraid. He runs, he, he tries to hide, he tries to get away. He's, uh, all the people who are under him are afraid, and so they're not sure what's going to happen. Uh, we also see, you see there in verse 4, is another contender for the throne. So if Ishbosheth is one contender, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, is another contender. They are both possible heirs to the throne. But really, look at them. Neither one of them is really a, a possible contender for the throne. Ishbosheth is afraid now that Abner, the one who is propping him up, is gone. He can't be the king. Mephibosheth, it tells about how we'll, we'll hear more about him later. Uh, but we see here that he is lame in his feet. And he's obviously not going to be the next king. He's not going to overthrow David or anything like that. And so all the contenders are really, there is no contention for the kingship anymore. David has a straight path to becoming the king of the United Israel. But there are these two guys. They're brothers, they are leaders of some of Ishbosheth's raiding bands, and they start to see the writing on the wall. They start to see that David is going to be the next king, and they kind of want to have a part in David's administration. They want to be a part of his court. They want to be a part of his kingdom, uh, and they want high positions, and so they come up with a plan. They ride, they ride uh, straight to Ishbosheth's house. They make like they're going to uh, get some wheat out of the house, and then they go into Ishbosheth's house while he's taking his daily siesta, and they stab him in the stomach. And they cut off his head, and then they bring the head back to David. And you can look at verse 8. Look at what they are expecting. It says in the middle of verse 8, And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. They think, hey, we, we cut off the head of the, of the guy who was against you. And so now, now we're going now, now to get, we're going to be number one and number two in the kingdom. We're going to be, we're going to be 
David's right-hand men. We're at least going to get a, a good, a good a little, little, little government position where we, can, where we can rule some people or we can have, be in charge of somebody and we're going to make a good salary and, and look what's going to happen. And they even kind of paint it in pious words. You know, look, look, David, look how the Lord has done this. He handed him into our hands and uh, the Lord did this and he avenged you against Saul and against his offspring, against his son. They obviously don't know David. In 2 Samuel 1, David had mourned the death of Saul. Uh, what's more, he mourned the death of Saul's offspring, Jonathan, who was his best friend. We know what happens. We know how David feels about, about these men and the kinds of ways that they are doing things. They think, they think the end justifies the means. That they can do wrong in order to get a good end. I think one of the things that we learn ethically about how we ought to do things and how we ought to live is we ought never think that we can do wrong in order to do right. We should never think that in doing something wicked like these men are that we can sort of accomplish some kind of good end. That, that does not work. We do not see that uh, couched by any story in the scriptures. I know there are some difficult ethical positions, uh, ethical places in the Bible, but we do not see Jesus or God commanding anyone to do something evil in order to accomplish a good end. You look at what David says. David says in verse 9, David answered Rechab and Baanah, his brother, the sons of Rimon, the Beerthite. He says, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Uh, one commentator said this is really like the, the theme verse of all of David's life. God, the Lord, delivered him out of every adversity. David had a chance to kill Saul multiple times and he didn't. David has already faced uh, somebody like Abner who tried to take the kingdom from him. But that Abner failed in every way. These two yahoos think that they are going to deliver the kingdom to David. The Lord gives the kingdom to David. David doesn't, David doesn't go and, and do wicked things in order to gain the kingdom. Instead, he waits and receives the kingdom from the Lord by acting righteously. You also know how David, what David thinks about these guys. Now, on the one hand, you have the, the, in chapter 1, you have the Amalekite messenger who killed Saul or at least, at least claimed to kill Saul. Well, at least that was in the heat of battle. At least then Saul was, was uh, supposedly dying. David, David's basically like, what, you, you went and stabbed a man in his bed while he was sleeping and you think I'm going to make you a couple of my mighty men? You gonna, think I'm going to give you a high position? You want some kind of commendation for your cowardice? Instead, he says to his servants to say, take these men. Uh, and he has their feet cut off, the feet that were swift to shed blood. And he has their hands cut off, the hands that held the daggers that stabbed the man in the gut. Uh, and then they have these men who committed murder against an innocent man. We know that Ishbosheth did something wrong in rebelling against David, but, but he had done nothing deserving of death. He was, he was, in fact, no threat to David at all. These men were not taking out one of David's threats. They were trying to get their own ambition and their own prideful uh, desires fulfilled. 
David has them hung where everybody can see it. That was a sign that they were cursed by God. It's really, it seems severe to us, and it is severe. But these are men who took a man's life who was made in the image of God, and so the king executed justice against them by taking their lives. I think it is good to know that, I, I think if you look back, you look at Ishbosheth, you look at Abner, you look at any of the people who, who were against David, if at any moment any of those men had come to David and said, hey, we want forgiveness. We, we want to submit to you as king. We want clemency. We want pardon. We want forgiveness. David would have given it to those men. He was ready to give it to Abner. He would have given it to Ishbosheth. He was ready to give it to the people of Jabesh Gilead. He was ready to give it to anybody in the kingdom who was ready to say, I repent. I, I, I submit to you as king. I, I'm ready to serve you. Please forgive me. He was ready to do that. But these men who go and perpetrate wickedness and murder, these men who rebel against God's king, David, receive justice from the hands of God's king. And that's the way it is for everybody in relationship to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's king. Now, for anybody who would turn from their sins and, and turn to Christ and submit to Christ and be a part of his kingdom, there is forgiveness, there is pardon, there is clemency. But if you persist in rebellion, there is the expectation of justice. Jesus came in his first coming to offer the forgiveness of sins to anybody who would take it. He comes again at his second coming to render justice against all who rebel against him. I also don't want you to miss, this is good news. When Jesus Christ comes and takes care of all the bad guys, that's good news. That means you walk all the streets, no matter how dark it is or, or what time of the day it is or what part, of the, what part of the city it is. You go and you walk and you don't, you're not afraid of any of the bad people anymore. There are no more liars. There are no more robbers, no more burglars, no more murderers, no more terrorists, no more dictators, no more monsters of any kind. When Jesus Christ comes, there's no more fear. None. Not even a little bit. There is nothing to be afraid of in the kingdom of God. When Jesus Christ returns and he sets up his kingdom in its fullness and everything is, there's the entire culmination of everything that he died for, there are no more bad people to threaten you. That's really good news for the good people in God's kingdom. For those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, that's the reality of our future, that we will come to a place that we will live where Jesus Christ lives that we will live where God dwells and that is the place where peace and righteousness rules so although it you don't want to be on the receiving end of that of of God's justice you do want God to be just and it's good news that he is and then that is how uh, God establishes the kingdom against all contenders next we see that David's kingdom God establishes a kingdom for David over a united people. Let's read chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is what it says. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. 
So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At, at Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. After Ishbosheth is, is uh, after he dies, and, and after all of the contenders are, are gone, Israel, the northern tribes of Israel, all these, all these tribes, David at this point is, is ruling over one tribe. His own, his own tribe, Judah. But now it's all the tribes come together. And they come together and they, they have three reasons for recognizing David as king. Now David has been anointed king by the Lord. He's the one who sets the king of Israel. But they are now recognizing who the king is. And so they say, number one, we're flesh and blood. We're your brothers. We're, we are all descendants of Abraham. We are all united. We're all of one flesh. And so we're ready to recognize you as king. Secondly, they say... You've always been a leader in Israel. You're the one who went out and won these battles, when, even when Saul was king. You're the one who defeated Goliath. You have been our leader from the beginning. But obviously the most significant one is, the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Keep that word shepherd in mind. We know, uh, many of us will know that David was a shepherd. And this becomes this theme, uh, or this this metaphor, this, this language for the kind of leader that God's people has. One who rules them, who is over them, but deals with them with tenderness and kindness. One who is constantly watching out for their needs. One, one that would be familiar to all the people of the time, but, but even for us, I mean, who don't deal a lot with sheep, but we know that, that he's there to take care of us, that God is is taking care of us. Well, this is what David is going to do. This is what the king is going to do for God's people. He's going to, he's going to see that they prosper. He's going to rule them in righteousness. He's going to protect them from their enemies. When they take David and they anoint him as king of Israel, he starts when he's 30 years old. This is kind of this ideal time to start a great work. Uh, Joseph started his work when he was about 30 years old. Jesus will later take, start his work when he's about 30 years old. He reigns for 40 years, which is this ideal time span for a rule. Uh, the same as, as a, a great men would rule for 40 years. That would be a, a, complete, uh, a complete generation or a complete period of time, an ideal period of time. That's what God did through David. This is the United Kingdom under God's king. Now then, in the coming chapters, we're going to see David is not perfect. David is certainly not sinless. We're going to begin to see him make mistakes in a couple of chapters, and then he is going to make uh, some big errors, and he is going to sin against God in ways that you would never imagine that he would sin, but he does. So he's not sinless, but he does set this pattern for what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like. It's supposed to be ruled by somebody who is a man after God's own heart. It's supposed to be ruled by a man who executes righteousness. It's supposed to be ruled by someone who cares for God's people and does what is good for God's people and watches over God's people. A man who is, who is, who is pure and devoted to God. He's also so, supposed to be one who rules over a united kingdom, a kingdom that is brought together. Well, after David and Solomon die and the kingdom is split, 
and the people of God, the, the nation of the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah, they are, they are destroyed. At least the northern kingdom is destroyed and the southern kingdom, because of its continual disobedience against God, is brought into exile. What happened to the kingdom of God? Well, it, it was taken away. The king was deposed. The land was lost. But then the prophets start to talk about something that's going to come in the future. They start to talk about a, the, the restoration of the kingdom. There's going to be, the kingdom is going to be again, and there's going to be another shepherd, and there's going to be another king. If you can, follow along with me to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. And read with me verses 15 through 28. Ezekiel 37, verses 15 through 28. <clears throat> Listen to what Ezekiel says to the people of God. Well, this is what he says to the, the nation that is, that is in exile already, that has, a, had seized the, has seen the kingdom fall, has seen Jerusalem fall, has been taken out of the land, has seen all of the, the promises that God made. They, because of their, their disobedience, because of their covenant breaking, because of their law breaking, because of their, their uh, idolatry, they have been taken out of the land. Listen to the time that Ezekiel is talking, about them, talking to them about in the future. Verses 15 through 28. Ezekiel 37, 15 through 28. It says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick and write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another into one stick that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join, it, uh, join with it the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two, two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David my servant shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. When Ezekiel is talking to a people who don't have David as king, they don't have the land that's been promised to them. They don't have any of the good things that God had given them if only they would obey God's commands. When they've lost everything, 
God says, one day, David's going to be here again. There's going to be a new David. There's going to be a new king. I'm going to take, uh, take your division that has been there for hundreds of years now. That was even there before the coming of, before David became king, before David united the kingdom. This division, I'm going to make it one again. Ezekiel has these two sticks. One says Judah, one says Israel. He says, he puts them together in one hand, and one day he says, God is going to make you one people again. He's going to unite you. He's going to be a new David, and he's going to be your shepherd. He's going to be the one who, who watches you going out and you're coming in. He's going to be the one who takes care of you. Not only that, but all of, your, all of your rebellion, your rebellion that led to you going in exile, I'm going to change all that. Other places, Ezekiel talks about giving them new hearts, taking away their heart of stone, sprinkling clean water on them. He even says here, I'm going to cleanse this people. It's God who makes it where we're not rebels anymore. It's God who makes it where all the people begin to obey God's commands. What we could not do apart from God's Spirit, now that the Spirit has been given in a new way through the coming of Jesus Christ, those people who were renewed, who have been born again by the Spirit of God, begin to obey God's commands. Now increasingly being conformed to the image of God and one day perfectly in the kingdom of God when Jesus returns. He says, I'm going to do that. And he says, I'm going to dwell with this people. This is the, this is the picture of God's kingdom. Originally, God's kingdom was Adam serving under God. And if Adam obeyed, then he would live in the garden. When he disobeyed, he was out of the garden. Later, it is Israel living by the commands of Moses. If they obey, then they stay in the land. If they disobey, then they're out of the land. Adam disobeyed. Israel disobeyed. But God has designed a way from the beginning. He planned a way from the beginning that there would be a new David, a new king who would come, a king who would offer forgiveness of sins, and a king who would take away all of their rebellious spirits. That's what Jesus Christ does. Listen to what John, John 10 says. Who is the good shepherd? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Who's, who's the shepherd who's like David? David was the shepherd of Israel, and, and they lost their David. They lost their king. And then Ezekiel, the prophet, says, I'm going to send you a new David. There's going to be a, another David, another king, another king who's going to shepherd you. Who is the good shepherd? Jesus is the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, is what Jesus says. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. How are you going to have this covenant of peace that Ezekiel talks about? Jesus lays down his life. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant. He makes a covenant of peace with his people, with his own. And he says in verse 16, now listen, and I have other sheep that are not this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. How does Jesus Christ fulfill the prophecy of Ezekiel? He takes the people of Judah, and he takes those who have been lost among the nations, and he takes those two flocks that have been divided, and he brings them together. And he says, I'm going to have 
there's going to be one shepherd and one flock. Now then, listen to Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the, uns- the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What did, Jesus Christ do? what did Jesus Christ do when he died on the cross? He took a people that were divided and he brings them together. He breaks down the dividing wall. Not only the hostility between us and God, but the hostility between all peoples who are alienated from one another by our sin. And he unites us to be one people. He takes two peoples. In this sense, he is talking about the fulfillment of of Ezekiel and of John. And he is saying, I'm talking about the nations, the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish. Those who who had, had in some sense rebelled against God's king. And yet, here they are being brought together again. They're being, he's taking two people and making one new man. He's taking the dividing wall and he's breaking it down. He's making it so, as Ezekiel had talked about, now the Spirit is dwelling among us. Now, it's hard for us to get this. We're, we, for hundreds of years now, it's been a predominantly Gentile church. Do you realize that no one expected for any of us to have any part in the kingdom of God? Sure, it was prophesied, but overlooked. No one expected that any of us, without a biological ancestry in Abraham would one day be a part of God's people, would one day belong in the kingdom of God. Nobody expected that when Jesus came. And yet Jesus Christ accomplished it by dying on the cross so that he would unite from every tribe and language and people and nation a people for himself, not only, not only a few people but a great multitude who are saying, worthy are you. Because you ransomed people for yourself from every tribe and language and people and nation. We were far off. We, 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 we don't even know how far off we were. We were far off. And Jesus Christ brought us near. More important than that. And I do mean, even more important than our salvation, is the glory of Jesus Christ. David, who had been ruling, 
Well, let's, let's start further back. David, who had been running for his life in the wilderness, expecting to die every day, became the king over one tribe of Israel. Now he has become the king over the 12 tribes of Israel. How much greater is his glory now? How much greater is his notoriety now? How much greater is his fame now? That he has, he has brought these people who could not be brought together. He's now brought them together. Ezekiel is talking about one day there is going to be a king like David who's going to bring these people who are alienated from one another that you could not bring together. Jesus Christ brings them together. Jesus Christ says now there is not just a lost sheep of Israel, but there's another flock and I'm going to bring them together. How great would Jesus' glory be if he only saved the Jews? It would be great. These were rebellious people. These were people who had not, who had not followed God's commands, who, had, who though they had been redeemed by Jesus Christ from slavery in Egypt, they had at every opportunity turned to idolatry. The way Jeremiah talks about it, they had turned from the, the fountain of living water to go and suck at dry cisterns. And yet Jesus redeemed them. He redeemed every single one of them who would turn and submit to Jesus Christ, starting with 12. How the kingdom starts very, very small, like a mustard seed. But what is the fame, what is the glory, what is the renown of Jesus Christ in the end? It is that he has brought not a single nation, but people from every nation, from every language, from every land, from all over the world, that they would glorify Jesus Christ as their king. That's more important than you and me. That's more important even than our salvation. That Jesus Christ would have the salvation, that he would have the praise and the glory and the honor and the dominion over the entire world. Everybody would see. That's what Jesus Christ does. People who can't get along with the outside of Jesus Christ somehow find unity in Jesus Christ. People who are separated in the most basic ways, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, poor and rich, are brought together in Jesus Christ. Even people from different places, even different languages, we can't even talk to one another, but somehow we all praise Jesus Christ. That's the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ is that the Father took people and he gave them to Jesus. And Jesus died for them. They were ransomed by Jesus. They belong to him now. They've been brought to him by the Spirit. And now there's a people for Jesus Christ. Praise be to Jesus Christ, our King. He really is worthy. He really is worthy of all the praise and all the glory and all the honor of all the people who live on the face of the earth now, who have ever lived, who will ever live. Let him be praised. Really the last, I'm going to go back to 2 Samuel now. Read one last, one last section here. Read verses 6 through 12 where we see the kingdom established against all enemies. It says, 
And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. David chooses a new capital. And this is a really wise move. So he's united the kingdom. Now he chooses a neutral city that had not been dwelt in either by the tribe of Judah or by any of the other tribes. It's centrally located and it is an impregnable fortress. And David goes and he takes it. Now, I'm not sure exactly what the military tactics are, but somehow the, the, the Jebusites who live in Jerusalem, they are jeering at David and saying that, that we'll fight you off. Even, even we could put our blind and our lame as the watchmen on our walls and they could, they could fight you back. They only had to be very strong. They had to be very capable. We're not even going to send out the varsity team. We're going to send out the, lime and, the lame and the blind. Well, David says, well, let somebody go up the water shaft somehow going in through the water supply to the city and let them take care of the the lame and the blind who are going to keep me out, the Jebusites. And ultimately he wins the battle. And he says there that he begins to build it out and becomes greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. I don't know if you catch exactly how big a deal this is, these Jebusites. This is David beat the Jebusites. Listen to this. Listen, listen. I think you can listen. Genesis 15, 18 through 21. This is God's promise to Abraham. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites. Come on, we all know it. No, no, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the... Jebusites. Over and over again, when it's repeated in the Old Testament, you have these lists of these nations, these nations who were rebelling against God. These were wicked people. These were people who were violent. They were people who were idolatrous. They were people who were sexually immoral. They were people who practiced child sacrifice. And ultimately, God has, has planned that they will be dispossessed by the people of God, by the nation of Israel. But this last, this last people, the Jebusites, they're always listed last. Now listen to what Joshua 15, 63 says. And this will be an encouragement to you. For any of you who have ever tried to read Joshua 13 through 17. It's this long list of peoples and, and where they're going to live. And occasionally you come across a verse like this where, hey, this is what it's all about. It says, verse, six, uh, verse 63, this is Joshua 15, 63. Probably nobody's life verse, but this is what it says. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could 
Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. That is, Joshua leads the battle against Jericho, takes down Jericho, does a northern campaign, gets a foothold there, does a southern campaign, takes a foothold there. The the land is distributed to all the tribes. They go in, they start to take the land. They're going to take it little by little. That's God's plan for them. But Judah, they go to Jerusalem. They can't get anybody out of Jerusalem. They go up against the Jebusites. They can't get rid of the Jebusites. Until one day, when God's king comes, the first real king of Israel. Not the rejected king, but but the king, the ideal king. The pattern of the ideal king, David, comes, and he's the one who defeats the Jebusites. He's the one who gets this place that nobody else could take. Only David can do that. Now I said, you beat, to be the best, you got to beat the best. That's what David does. He goes out, he defeats Goliath. He goes up against Jerusalem, he gets Jerusalem. David is the one who does that. How much more glory does Jesus Christ have now that he has defeated our enemies? Not, not the Jebusites, not the lame and the blind. He's defeated sin and death. The last enemy. The, the, that's, what, that's what Paul calls it, 1 Corinthians 15. The last enemy is death. David's last enemy, the Jebusites. That was, the, that was the last people that God had said to Abram that would be dispossessed from the land. David's last enemy, Jebusites. Our last enemy, conquered by Jesus Christ, death. Praise God. And look at what he says. Uh, if we look at 2 Samuel again, look at verses 11 and 12, you even see Hiram. And one day as we get into 1 Kings and 2 Kings, uh, we'll see that not only do David and Solomon secure the land, but then the riches of the nation start to come in. You even see this in the lifetime of David. Already there's, there's this prefigurement, this, is, this, this beginning of the nations, the riches of the nations coming in to Jerusalem, coming to the king of Israel. All this is for whom? It says, David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Who gets the exaltation? Who gets the glory? Who gets the fame? Who gets the notoriety? The king, Jesus Christ. Who, who, who gets exalted? Jesus Christ gets exalted. The king, the king of God's people gets exalted. Apart from me and you, okay, just for a second. Just, it's hard to do, but suspend all self-interest. It is remarkable, amazing, marvelous, that Jesus Christ is exalted over all. And then there is some self-interest for us. It's not contrary to our good, but it is in fact for our good. Jesus Christ is exalted, and that's good for us. The bigger Jesus gets, the bigger Christ 
seems and is and is recognized to be, the better it is for us. It's good to live under a good king. You know, sometimes when we talk about Jesus being king, we've got to, we've got to talk about words like submission and, and obedience. Uh, and, and those are words that, that for some people, there's an automatic reflex action of, I don't, I don't like that. That, that, that. that doesn't seem right to me. But for anybody who really knows Jesus Christ, you know how good and sweet and delightful and joyful and happy it is to serve Jesus Christ as king. It really is a joy. The dominant note of the Christian life is rejoicing. It's because we serve a good king. Let's know him. Let's glorify him. Let's see him exalted. I know that I kind of feel like, man, I really took you guys in some unfamiliar places today. I want you to understand at the very least, that God has always had a plan. It has always centered on Jesus Christ. It is centered on the exaltation of Jesus Christ for his glory, his fame, his notoriety, his everything. And for the good of his people. Let's believe that and live that way and rejoice in that forever and ever and ever in the presence of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Let's pray. Father, uh, we say amen to all that your word says about the glory of Jesus Christ. He truly is worthy. As all of the, the beings, all of the beings that are surrounding the throne now, as all of the, the, the great creatures and the beings and the angels and, and the elders and, and all that exists, as all that truly knows you says, worthy is Jesus Christ. To receive all glory and dominion and power forever and ever. Please grant that we would be among that great multitude. That our rebellion would be put away. That our sins would be forgiven through Jesus Christ. We want to be there with him. He is our, he is our husband and our groom. And we are his bride. And we love him. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for exalting him and that we get the privilege of seeing his glory. In his name we pray, amen.